This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Crack Corn, the ridiculously delicious ultra premium puff corn. Not popcorn, puff corn. Buttery, sugary, salty, and sweet, you've got to try it. Head on over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast for an amazing deal just for our listeners. And they ship right to your door. It tastes amazing. Show Crackcorn some love. Crackcorn.com slash the MJCast. The following is a presentation from the MJCast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to this very special Halloween episode of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today we get the pleasure of speaking with one of Michael Jackson's most significant longtime collaborators, Mr. Travis Payne. Travis is an American choreographer, director, and producer who worked closely with Michael Jackson from the Dangerous Era all the way until his tragic passing in 2009. Travis Payne has been honoured with the MTV Video Music Award for Best Choreography four times and is the recipient of many other nominations and awards, with a range of them relating to his work on seminal Michael Jackson projects like Dangerous, Scream and Ghosts. Travis toured with Michael Jackson on the Dangerous and History World tours and was involved in a range of special performances like Michael Jackson's phenomenal set on the MTV VMA Awards 1995 and the ill-fated HBO special, One Night Only. In 2009, Travis was brought on board for This Is It in a key capacity, helping to conceive Michael's comeback concerts right alongside Michael Jackson himself and Kenny Ortega. More recently, Travis Payne served as the associate producer for the film This Is It, and along with Kenny Ortega, was extensively and intimately involved in the making of the film, This Is It grossed $261.3 million during its theatrical run, making it the highest grossing documentary or concert movie of all time. Travis is allowing us to ask any questions we want and is graciously giving the MJ cast as much time as we want. We can't wait to delve into his work with the King of Pop. Travis, welcome to the MJ cast. I'm guessing you're still probably in lockdown right about now. Yes, still in isolation. I think this is day 21. For me, you know, it's a it's an interesting time. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, much more to be revealed to us in the coming weeks. But, you know, who would have thought last year we'd be facing this moment? As I told you the last time we spoke, it, it definitely makes me remember many of the messages that have always been in Michael's songs, particularly Earth Song. And, you know, seeing stuff just sort of play out on the news, it's surreal. It's surreal. It's, you know, it leaves me lost for words at times. Absolutely. And, and I suppose you've had a lot of uh, time for dance practice and things like that while you've been uh, isolated. You've got a home studio, right? Yes, I do. And actually, I've been in my studio more and more these days, you know, because we, um, you know, are talking to each other through, 
video conferencing. And so sometimes I'll do stuff in my office, but, you know, moving it more to my studio these days so I can really, you know, have the space. But it's, um, I don't know, it's just such a, it's such a curious time. I haven't been doing a lot of dancing. It's been more about stretching, meditation, and really I found myself with a lot of time on my hands to start spring cleaning, actually. <laughs> and, and yeah, I have been organizing stuff, you know, going through costumes and, you know, my library of uh, footage and tapes and books and reference materials. I've just been sort of sorting through and cataloging and organizing and taking advantage of the downtime to do that for sure, which I like, I, you know, I like one of my favorite places is like Target or the container store. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love and and I love to watch um, videos on YouTube about like closets and organizing and pantries. It's yeah, it's kind of a guilty pleasure <laughs> these days. Marie Kondo type stuff, huh? Very that, you know, I'm <laughs> obsessed with organization. I always have been. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I get it. I think I get it from my uncle Claude who was um, in the military. And I just remember growing up, going to his house and seeing the amazing amount of precision used to store his flatware and the, <laughs> and the, <laughs> the very Virgo -y layout of everything. And I just like that kind of stuff. So I don't know, got off on that tangent, but yeah, I found myself with a lot of time to kind of do that sort of stuff here around my house. Yeah, it is a good time for those kind of things. Travis, I want to thank you again for joining us on the MJ cast. We absolutely love having people on the show that knew Michael Jackson personally, that worked with him. And you certainly had a very extensive career intertwined with his own career in being able to bring his art out for the world to see. What we do in our shows is we like to start off by going right back to the origins of people's lives and how they got into the field they did. So could you start by talking to us about your early life and your introduction to dance? Of course. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, my parents were educators, and my mother was also a flautist, a concert flautist and band director. So music was always in my life. My father had a student, Norma Bell, who had a dance school in my hometown in the southwest Atlanta area. So I started actually training formally at eight years old in ballet, tap, jazz, and worked around the metro Atlanta area as a child, and then got to do a lot of the dance conventions at the time. It was like Dance Masters of America and things like that. And uh, Joe Tremaine would have a convention. So that was a big thing, kind of like what you see these days on Dance Moms. So I was in that world for a while until I got accepted to Northside School of the Arts, which was a full performing arts high school like Fame. And there studied musical theater, got more into hip hop dance. We'd have choir rehearsals. We sang show tunes and we toured actually around the world and we're known as Atlanta's showbiz kids, I believe. And we were sponsored by Coca-Cola and American Express, and at the time, Sabina Airlines. So at 14, I was able to start traveling the world. And one of the first places I went to was Tokyo. That'll have a significance later. But I came up through Northside. I was also a part of the Gary Harrison Dance Company for all of those years. And through one of those performances in my senior year of high school, met a gentleman named Frank Gatson, who 
was at the time managing Lavelle Smith, who had already done the Bad Tour with Michael and was currently working on Rhythm Nation with Janet at that time. So I finished my high school and started college at Morehouse. During that first year of college, was going back and forth to Los Angeles and actually auditioning for American Music Awards with Paula Abdul, Academy Awards with Debbie Allen, you know, different projects. But fortunately, in my early high school years, I got a chance to not only see the Jacksons, but also see Michael's Bad Tour. That was a seminal moment for me in that I'd always known about dance and I'd always respected Michael Jackson, but I'd never seen him live and I'd never seen him with his dancers. I'd only seen him with his brothers. So seeing Michael with dancers, one of them being Lavelle Smith, a black guy, really planted a seed for me, you know, because I'd always grown up like many others, really huge fans of the Jacksons. And, you know, at that time, too, it was Madonna and Prince and Paula after a certain period of time and dance and music culture were really more popular than this was before LaFace Records in Atlanta. All of that to say that I got a glimpse into what I wanted my future to be very early. And it gave me a certain amount of focus that I'm so grateful for that just kept me very driven. When I wound up moving to Los Angeles, Uncle Claude I was talking about earlier, who lived out here, I think in Laguna Beach. And my parents allowed me to come to LA because he was here. And so soon after arriving here and being welcomed by Frank and Lavelle and Jimmy Locust at that time, and Michael Peters was in the picture, I got into work with him as a high school person. Thriller was huge. And he was directing the Centennial Celebration for Coca-Cola, which happened in Atlanta. L.A. dancers and New York dancers were there at our performing arts high school. We performed. It was a huge thing. You know, I got to see the performers I'd watched on TV, you know, like Eartha Robinson, who I'd seen in Fame, and people who were solid gold dancers and people who had been in commercials. And those experiences really sort of set me up for what would be my creative and professional life. So arriving in Atlanta, um, from Atlanta, doing the thing here in LA, auditioning, small jobs, things like that. The Rhythm Nation tour was going on. Anthony Thomas, who choreographed a majority of the project, was leaving to really get into his choreography career full time. And because I was at the right place in the right time and knew all of the steps, was able to put together a videotape submission way back then and get it to Janet through Lavelle. So my first big job at 19 was Rhythm Nation Tour, you know, stepping in to finish the tour when Anthony Thomas left. Well, prior to that, we did the rehearsals in my Uncle Claude's kitchen. And my first performance was at Tokyo Dome, where I had gone as a child in high school. So it was a whole big dream for me and getting to do things like that and reflect on those times. I'm speechless at it, but couldn't have hoped for a better start in those early days. Who were some of your inspirations in your early days? You mentioned Lavelle, but were there any other key dancers that you looked up to and thought, these guys are incredible? Of course. Mikhail Baryshnikov, Rudolf Nureyev, Alvin Ailey, Ben Vereen, 
Bob Fosse, who I'd later come to really understand the work of because of Michael. And then there was a young man, I can't call his name, but I always reference it. It was called The Hot Shoe Show. It was out of the UK. It was a variety show. And a young man did all these dance skits. And it wasn't a competition. It was just dance for dance sake. If you can find it, check it out. But I remember those formative years and also watching Danny Terrio and Motion. They had a show called Dance Fever which was like a solid gold, you know, and of course the solid gold dancers. I mean, seeing them, that was really my first time seeing men that weren't doing ballet, you mm-hmm. know, or, or breaking of course, which was, you know, gaining momentum and getting its groundswell, but there was nothing in the middle at that time. It was either very traditional classroom, theatrical dance or full out street dance seeing Michael bridge those two worlds for me and added a bit of superhero with it. Oh my God. And then I was <laughs> obsessed with, with gymnastics and tumbling. So, you know, flying and being a superhero and all that stuff I got out of Janet on the rhythm nation tour because we were literal soldiers. And then, you know, but before any of those tours, the first job I did with Michael ever was remember the time. You've just mentioned about working with Janet on tour. It's incredible that it came full circle at Tokyo Dome and your career started with Michael's sister. Now, Mm -hmm. I want to know about the differences between Michael and Janet on tour and what it was like to work with Janet as compared to Michael. The bigger difference for me is that Janet's tour was already in motion, right? They had already filmed all of her films, Miss You Much, Rhythm Nation, Knowledge, escapade they'd already done many of the properties so they were a family so i was a little outsider coming in who was so wide-eyed and just did not understand so much but you know it was a crash course for me so i spent a lot of time learning you know with janet with michael i feel like i had the opportunity to prepare even though the first tour would be a similar experience where i got to finish the tour once another performer left. That time being Randy Allaire, actually, for the Dangerous Tour. The Michael experiences, I was in a bit of production for Dangerous, certainly the entire production for History, and this is it. So having involvement from that level, even sometimes inception or even contribution of the ideas, wasn't possible for Rhythm Nation because the train had already left the station. I was, what, 19? I wasn't even 20 years old then, I don't think, and had no idea how to put together a show of that magnitude yet. So, you know, for me, and and I tell this story, I saw Renee, actually, you know, because we just celebrated the, I believe it was anniversary, it was a big anniversary for Rhythm Nation that just passed. And I saw Renee and Jimmy, but we were able to laugh about a story in Hong Kong once when we were on Rhythm Nation. I bought a video camera and a tripod and I set it up on the soundboard and I recorded the entire show. And my intention was to be able to send it to my parents, you know, to see back in Atlanta. I didn't know anything about, you know, rights or, you know, copyright infringement or, you know, just all uh, how many ways of wrong that was to do but they taught me and i was so you know i guess embarrassed and uh, my feelings were hurt you know but janet sat me down on the stage and explained it to me 
why I couldn't do that. And I appreciate that. So it was, um, you know, that was very much the difference between those two touring experiences. Yeah, got it. And were there, did you notice similar ways of working between Michael and Janet as professionals? They both want and strive for and expect and require excellence. You know, I think that's definitely a commonality for sure. But again, like I said, my creative process with Janet for Rhythm Nation was not nearly as extensive mm-hmm. as with Michael. Yeah. But yeah. I but what I do love and have always admired about Janet is her loyalty to her creative partners, Paula and Anthony and Terry and Renee and Lavelle and Seanette and Tina and Gil and you know, all of the people that she has embraced. I, I love seeing that. I really, really love seeing that. I'd like to know about your thoughts on Michael and his family as you were growing up and a young man. What were your perceptions of Michael Jackson and his work? Well, from an early age, being able to see Michael and his brothers in a cartoon and knowing that his family out of Gary, Indiana is making it in entertainment, the entire family and seeing good times and having the posters and being a super fan and sleeping outside and getting the records and going through that whole process and, you know, learning every step of every video, like I loved what they were doing. You know, they were at that time, the only family that it was doing it at such a high level that we'd seen since the Osmonds. So it was just, you know, everybody was so very proud of them and all of the talent was just undeniable. And so it really gave kids a point of reference you know, and something to strive for, especially if you were artistically inclined. You said something earlier that really struck a chord with me. It was about Michael um, bridging the gap between different styles of dance. And it made me think about an interview I did once with Vince Patterson. And he said something really poignant in it around the work that Michael did in the 80s gave permission for men to embrace dance. And I love that thought. Did you, Do you have a similar perception? Agreed. I think Michael made the art of dance and performance in general cool. There were none before him that had the exact mixture of nostalgia and future and pop and rock and soul and funk and gospel and, you know, this image and all of it hit at the right time. So I think the business of being a performing artist was crystallized by Michael Jackson. I talked to young people who are either studying aspects of Michael's life from his business acumen to his creative process. And, you know, I, I speak with young people who are at a college level who are writing actual theses or important papers based on this information. And it is to be studied because after all, Michael studied many of the greats and was very well versed in so many different subjects from social, political to obviously creative, but was able to pull from this extensive wealth of knowledge because of his travels and his exposure and, you know, his access, the circumstances that he and his brother endured in their early years, you know, with certain segregation and racism. And they've lived through so many decades. And as performing artists, you know, with 
more access than a layperson, I think that Michael had a very broad perspective of the human condition. Talk to us about your very first meeting and interaction with Michael Jackson. Uh, let's see. Very first meeting was during Remember the Time. And among the first things I said to him was, please don't get upset, but I'm going to stare at you. And he said, oh, that's totally fine. That's cool. That's cool. And I said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my best, but I'm sort of freaking out. But this is good. Like, I was able to finally take a deep breath because I spent so much time working hard to get the opportunity. And once I finally had it, I found it to be very comforting and really relaxing. And Michael had the gift of making you just feel comfortable and respected and worthy of the opportunity. So those early first few moments, maybe I was shallow breathing, but I instantly just relaxed. And then we started to exchange all of the projects that we worked on. Very rarely were we like right on time with schedule or budgets or anything like that. And remember the time was no different, but being my first experience, I didn't realize that a, it wasn't a music video, it was a film with SAG jurisdiction, screen actors, Guild royalties. It was a, it was an actual movie shoot. So it went over at that time we were day players. So you book two days here, four days here, five days here between tours or whatever the longer employment moments are. So there were, you know, I, I was booked on other projects and fortunately I was able to get out of the shoot, you know, because you force some type of action on the other side. If you just don't show up, I was able to get out of the last day, which I thought was the last day. And they kept going again and it just was, it just broke my heart. And so you can see when you watch Remember the Time, when all of the Egyptians start to perform, I blink in and out and in and out. And at least I'm in it, <laughs> at least I'm in it, you know, but it taught me a lot about a Michael Jackson process. You can't just schedule it and expect that to be set in stone. That thought is echoed by many, many people we've spoken to, especially audio engineers in the studio who would have to set aside sometimes years and years of their lives to see projects come out or not come out <laughs> to their frustration. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I feel like it was always worth it when you see it in the work of Ghost, which took four years to create, when you see it, you know, in the work of Scream, which, you know, took so many days, but still wasn't completed as far as number of sets that were intended, you know, it was just part of the process, you know, working with Michael Jackson, you listened to the process, the process dictated what was needed in the way of time and budget. Do you have any specific or special memories about remember the time that shoot or even its significance as a video? Remember the time was a work of art directed by the late John Singleton and starred many African-American luminaries. And it was a proud moment for, I think, America, but certainly for Michael to pay homage to our ancestry in such a magnificent way and to spare no expense and to humbly show how gifted and multicolored and 
multifaceted of people we are with the track by Teddy Riley. I mean, it just was everything in, in Michael Bush's wardrobe and, you know, having the, the legendary Iman and Magic Johnson and being able to film it in Hollywood on a movie lot and really be able to express in that way and then let black kids all over the world or people of color, everybody actually, just see what a wonderfully historic, educational and entertaining piece it turned out to be. It's fantastic. And I, I just love the dance sequence. So incredibly intricate. It's, it's really, really great. Who choreographed that actual dance sequence? I'm not sure about that. There was a team headed by Fatima Robinson and Mop Tops. So that's Stretch and Link and Loose Joint and these guys out of New York. And so that whole team and then Marilyn, Carolyn and Tish was in it. Omar, Jamal Sims was there. Oliver from Madonna. It was just a great moment, you know, and this was early on in all of our careers. Everybody went off from that production and went on to do great things. And it was an inspiring moment. It was just so great to be there. It was it was really great to be there. And then it would grow, you know, as we got into Dangerous and History and then This Is It. And every experience was amazing. And you knew it was going to be exciting because so much reason went into everything that Michael wanted to do. So for us and those who worked with him many years, it was always just a blessing to know that he still felt a connection and wanted to include certain individuals in his process. And then from that experience, I got the opportunity to join the Dangerous Tour. It was, was life-changing and really let me know the magnitude of Michael's messages and his reach and the importance of what his shows and concerts represent. The Dangerous World Tour was in a whole different level of production to Bad, for example, which you had seen live. Bad was quite organic and um, how do I put it? Rock and roll. That's it. Exactly. The way you said it. Dangerous World Tour had, you know, him jumping. He had the toaster and it had the fireworks Mm -hmm. and and it had the, the rocket man at the end and all kinds of different things like that. Incredible tour. How did you actually become a part of it? The difference between those is Kenny Ortega and Michael Cotton and coming into Dangerous and imagining those great moments with Michael. I was able to, quite similarly, with Lavelle's help and mentorship, be in the right place at the right time. And when Randy Allaire left the Dangerous tour in order to open his studio with Bill Prudich called Edge in Hollywood, I was able to step in there because we had done Remember the Time and it made sense. And unfortunately, the universe and planets aligned and it happened. And I was able to join the Dangerous Tour, which was already in motion. All of my shows were outside of America, actually. And, uh, you know, and then it was it was just, I don't know, dream come true. It was great. You know, it was great and to be traveling with Lavelle. It was awesome. Mexico City would be the last show we got to do. So that one definitely stands out. Actually didn't get to do and mark the end of that experience. Talk to us generally what it was like to tour with the King of Pop. Incredible. I mean, really, it was. I think that any performer who has the 
luxury of traveling in the way we did and being attended to the way we were and treated so fairly and kindly would just be so fortunate because what it did was it showed such a level of respect for what our individual contributions were to the show that you, I would appear at work every day, ready to work. So happy, so rested, Mm -hmm. so pleasant because Michael cared, you know, if you keep the troops happy, you could win the war, he would say. So that mattered, you know, not having to lug a bunch of luggage because you're on the road for months at a time, there's a chance you could get injured, you know, so he removed that from the equation. So there were luggage handlers or, you know, making sure you had all of the necessary equipment to do the best job possible. And so that was just the way it was. And oftentimes people in different countries would be so grateful because Michael was coming and his show would stimulate the economy in the different regions. You know, I just always respected that. And, you know, he cared, really, really cared. Yeah. And I want to talk a bit about the song Dangerous itself, because Dangerous to me is probably the seminal dance choreography piece of his career my daughter she's two years old olivia that's her favorite <laughs> favorite song she's singing it right, she olivia. dances to it <laughs> that's awesome i'm so happy to hear that i love dangerous too i love dangerous too <laughs> one story that hasn't really been told in the michael world is the origins of that song and how it was conceptualized as a piece and choreographed could you talk to us about how it originated well some backstory that I know, let's see, what's the name of the show? I think it's, I believe it's Bandwagon, but it's um, Sid Charisse. And part of that speech comes from a movie. And I know that tonally dangerous was a continuation of Smooth Criminal meaning the the gangster and the the sort of suits and the very minimal articulations and so for me thematically it was a continuation of that story that Michael and Vincent started so when Lavelle and I came and approached Dangerous with Michael we wanted to build on that and add to that language and our interpretation of what that is. That makes sense? It does, yeah. Um, so, and then of course we wanted to add street elements to it. I feel like dangerous is a culmination of all of those things. And then the fact that we got to work on it from 92 all the way to 2009 confirms that it remained a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And then you would see it be followed by You Rock My World, which continued that theme, but then in more of a, maybe could be Havana sort of nightclub, sort of maybe the demographics or the the location had changed, but it was still following this smooth criminal type character, Michael, throughout the pieces. Just the opportunity that we get to take and the liberties we could take with 
playing with um, good and badly ugly themes or Janet Jackson samples or sound effects and sound design in the music, mutes and edits was always so exciting and so much fun. Yeah. And so was it originally conceived for the American Music Awards performance, I think, in 92 and then included in the tour? I'm not sure if that was the thought. The thing was, it was time for Dangerous to exist. Mm -hmm. It was time to start working on Dangerous. So the first time we got to share any of the progress was in 92. The next time would be on the tour. Then it would be, you know, at MTV Awards and then subsequent shows. So it was just time for it to exist. I don't think it was like in preparation for the AMAs. It was really, it was time for it to happen inside of the the project. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I'm trying to visualize what the conception would have been like for that song. Take me inside what it was like to conceive an idea with Michael Jackson. Was it very back and forth, creative jousting type work? It's exactly that, you know, but each one was different. But for Dangerous in particular, we took a lot of cues from the music. So we would spend hours and hours and hours just listening to the music and writing down notes, whether it be shapes or colors or intentions or just words that connect to feelings that could be motivation for what the shapes could be. So it was always this extensive study, this sort of deep dive into the sonics and then listening to the music. And Mike would always say, it'll tell you what it needs. So we would spend a lot of time allowing the music to just participate in the creation. And then we would get up and start to create shapes. And then we start to create chunks. And then we'd organize the chunks. Then we'd edit the chunks. Then we'd add more chunks. Then we'd change the positioning of them. Then we'd scrap it all and start over again. Then now that we've done that process maybe three or four times, then you assess all of them. And then you really play a patchwork sort of thing. So from whatever date at whatever time, we like this version of Old Faithful which is what we might call Four Counts of Eight, which is actually the name of the first dance break in Dangerous. It just was a very visual as well as sonic exercise that would then help us have what we call vocabulary. And then you use vocabulary to make the sections. I'm just thinking about how intricate this choreography is you're describing. What sort of work would you do with Michael around warm-up and stretching? Was that a thing you guys would do a lot? Absolutely. For rehearsals, there will always be, you know, just a warm-up period. Because like I said, most times we would start listening to the music or sometimes not even his music and just start moving around, you know, just general stretching and stuff. You know, you start to ramp up, you know, to break a sweat and then you go. Just quite like the voice, um, not the show, but the instrument. Yeah. Um, so that would be a rehearsal scenario. But for a show scenario, many people don't know that. Like the moment you arrive at a venue, we would get in the costume and we would live in our looks all day and we would rehearse relentlessly up until the show. So the first time that you're seeing it on TV is probably the 70th time we've done it that day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't understand that, but it was like method acting. And even so say American Music Awards or MTV Awards just prior to the performance, in the breezeway or right on the side of the curtain, up until the last second, Michael and I and, uh, and Lavelle would be 
going through it. We'd be going through it, going through it until the lights go out and we get in place. So it's just doing it again, you know, because your body's already tuned in, you know, so we just would do it and what and it would just have so much more power because we've had all day to unite. I remember distinctly my co-host Q interviewing Lavelle and Lavelle expressed frustration to us around how a song or a choreography piece like that it's it's easy to copyright music if you're a writer or a you know producer but when it comes to creating the language of choreography mm-hmm. how how much frustration do you feel around not being able to copyright something like that well it is a lot of frustration around that subject but hopefully me and others like me can use our influence to affect a change there you know we've been trying for years but the problem is that when the budgets wane you've got people willing to work under what established minimums are Hmm. with no consequence so it doesn't encourage people to not do it you know once we can get all of the creatives on the same page about what the stipulations are and stick to it then we'll start to see some change but lyricists arrangers they're all so protected you know musicians hopefully one day we'll see that on the movement side but yeah it's been very difficult even you know where you can see actual plagiarism in the movement but people don't think it's that because they've never thought about it that way but they know they're used to hearing people getting sued all the time for uh, song compositions and being able to hear things side by side and tell if they're the same or not. A lot of people don't have that kind of eye when it comes to dance. It's just, you know, a fact. Mm. So shifting gears back to the Dangerous World Tour, you're in the middle of the second leg traveling through, I guess, Asia, Southeast Asia, and then through to uh, South America. You mentioned being in Mexico. And obviously, we know how that tour finished up, unfortunately. There was terrible, false molestation allegations leveled against Michael Jackson. We know that he was struggling with health issues at the time. Uh, we've spoken to some crew that were on the Dangerous Tour as well and, and, and different people and Kevin Dorsey, for example. And, mm-hmm. and they kind of paint a picture of what it was like to be at the end of that tour and, and how confusing it was. From your point of view, what was it like to be a part of a tour that was imploding almost? Well, the thing is that we didn't have social media like we have now. So much of the information that will later be revealed as to reasonings for the cancellation of the tour, we wouldn't find out until we got home. So just not knowing what exactly confidential details or business-related decisions, I certainly wasn't privy to at that time. So for me, I just could not believe that we're standing here on the side of the stage ready to do the show. And they're saying, we're not going to do the show. So it was a, I think, an emotional thing for me because I had become so accustomed to and so nourished by the opportunities to perform live. Mm. So just needing to come back home and return to normal life 
was a culture shock. It took some some getting used to. It was only after that time then we were able to sort of see the news regularly and hear all the rumors and the innuendo and having to be immersed in it like everybody else. But yeah, I didn't, you know, because again, for the Dangerous Tour, again, I joined. They were already in motion. You know, they had the benefit of forming their family. You know, they welcomed me, but I certainly was, you know, knew my lane and enjoyed dancing and choreographing and was very cool with that. And that was my focus, the show. And, and you didn't notice, did you notice any uh, or make any observations about Michael or, you know, on stage deteriorating at all? Or did it just seem everything as per normal for you? No, it was all normal for me. Yeah, he was doing the shows. He was hitting it. You know, I couldn't wait to watch Billie Jean every night. You know, <laughs> couldn't wait to, you know, it was like, I mean, imagine you're, you know, sort of getting to work with your hero and your dream coming true. You know, not many kids got that chance, you know. So for me, it was going to take a lot to ruin the experience. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the allegations, not because I like exploring it, but more for the point of view of, I think, getting you on the record around the recent documentary, if you could call it that, by Wade Robson and Jimmy Savechuck. Now, you knew Wade to some degree, right? I knew them both. Wade was always around. And yeah, he was there and we would have lessons and he was being trained and he had dance and his vocal and his what would go on to be his um, duo called Quo and his, you know, music career. He was always around for that reason. And I met Jimmy, I believe we were in Budapest filming the history teaser, you know, great guy. I saw Wade again, you know, through my time in Hollywood, because we have the same agent at one point, you know, and then the last time I saw him was when we were tributing Michael with Janet on the MTV stage. And in that performance, he was wearing the arm sleeves Michael had given him that Michael wore in bad and, you know, went into this whole sort of, you know, very emotional, moving moment about why he wanted to wear them. And we shed tears and the entire group prayed together and we did the performance. Then I returned to continue editing This Is It with Kenny. Yeah. And then the next I heard, it was, you know, a completely different person who had looped in James. So it baffles me still. I can't imagine what must have been going through your head hearing him change his tune like that. Like, it's, it's, it's actually so devastating and so sad. It really is. It really is. And it just broke my heart. It's certainly interesting watching their current appeal case unfold further in the American legal system right now. Let's do another change of gears. And we were talking earlier about Michael during the 90s. I love that whole period of time, by the way. You just mentioned MTV. I'm assuming you're talking yeah. about MTV 95. Mm -hmm. That whole period of the mid-90s and especially that performance, if I had to pinpoint one TV special performance that I think Michael was most on point in terms of dance, that's the one. Oh, yeah, and that was special. It was so special, you know, and one of the funny things about that I remember fondly was going to Michael and saying, brother, how short can you stand your hair and how long can you stand the pants? Just a question. <laughs> you know, let's just think, you know, let's just, you know, let's live a little. What do you think? 
you know, and then so when he emerged on the day with the short cropped haircut, which is still one of my favorites, you know, and the longer trousers, but Michael Bush put white elastic over the top of his shoes. So he still had a significant amount of exposed white. It was cool. It was a magical moment. Loved it. Yeah, love that performance. I would I would like to see the rehearsals of that because I know that they've got them filmed. MTV, I think, shared a clip at one point. And Michael has it. Michael would have it. We did mm, what MTV. That was in New York then. So that would have been at Sony Studios. I've seen some online from Sony Rehearsal. But yeah, those rehearsals were really cool. And I think, yeah, because we were at Radio City. So we rehearsed in the same studio as the Rockettes. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of history. During that same period of time, there was a very unique uh, performance, or I guess a, a show that unfortunately didn't end up happening, HBO's One Night Only. You were a part of that, right? Yes, I was, as short-lived as it was. <laughs> it was just brief. I didn't, you know, it really didn't get its legs. You know, so we, we were, I just remember we rehearsed a few days. I think it was around November, Thanksgiving time. We were in New York. We stayed at, I believe, the Double Tree. I remember because my mom was there. And we were at the Beacon Theater and only got a few rehearsals in. And I just remember shortly after the press conference with Marcel Marceau, Michael didn't feel well. And then the whole thing was off. Do you remember the the exact day where, or the exact moment where uh, Michael collapsed? You, I think you mentioned at some point you saw that, right? You saw him fall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. We were, we were sitting in the audience and, you know, some stage direction was going on, but and then Michael just fell over. And then, of course, you can imagine everyone was panicked and, you know, tended to him. And, and then once he was, you know, he had left to receive medical attention. And then I think, you know, at that point, it was, it was a done deal. And the show never happened. Do you think that Michael becoming ill was the only reason the show didn't happen? I have no idea. I really don't. Like, I mean, it'd be safe to say, though, that the rehearsals leading up to it, it wasn't gelling like it had before? Probably not, because we were in, uh, I believe we were in Germany when Lavelle and I found out about it. We were in Germany doing a show called Wittendas, and we didn't realize that Michael was headed to New York um, for one night only until he told us. And, you know, he said, see you in New York. And we said, what now? We know, what? <laughs> so he told us, yeah, come to New York. And so we and the dancers, instead of coming to L.A., came to New York. You know, there was already a different team working on ideas. And we tried to mesh. And, you know, I don't know what happened. But we were getting to work with Jeff Margolis and Debbie Allen. And Jamie King was there, my dear friend. And we tried, but it just did not work. No, because, I mean, I think... Jeff had very different ideas, didn't he, for how the show should look or how some of the songs should should appear. Yeah. But, you know, I think that, you know, part of Michael's process always was if we're going to change something or if we're going to modify something, it has to be better than the original version. I think sometimes in that space, it was it was um, it became challenging for people who may have had different ideas about how something should be presented, you know, but to Michael's credit, you may very well be disappointed if Billie Jean doesn't look or feel like Billie Jean. And he made it make sense to me, uh, Michael did, by saying, you know, when you go see James Brown, you want to see James Brown. You want to see James Brown do what James Brown does. When you go see Michael, you want to see 
what you've come to know Michael to do. As the show was sort of progressing in its production, was it the case that Michael sort of started bringing back his original team to put the original flavor back into some of these performances? Well, we were trying to interface. We were just trying to fuse classic and new ideas together, but we didn't really get far enough along in the process at all, really, as far as I can remember. I just, I think it was just so short. You know, we tried, but I don't know. Like I said, we weren't privy to anything prior to finding out the day before we showed up what was even going on. So I I don't know how long they'd been working on it or what decisions had been made, but I just know it was over. All right, Travis, let's take a little break here to talk about our main sponsor for this episode of the MJ Cast, Crack Corn. And as I've said many times before, I can't be more excited about Crack Corn. That's because it's a company that's started by one of our very own, a member of the online Michael Jackson fan community and an absolute huge fan of the show. They're called Crack Corn. They make this ridiculously delicious ultra-premium puffcorn. And what's puffcorn? Well, you really just kind of have to try it to find out. Many of you have already. Uh, my friend <laughs> told me the other day uh, just how many of you have been buying crack corn uh, internationally and, and in America as well. And I was absolutely blown away. And if you haven't tried it yet, you really need to because it's amazing. It's something totally new and unlike anything you've ever tried before. In fact, it was just introduced only under a year ago, and it's already making major waves across the snacking community. Who knew that this was even a thing? It's buttery, salty, sweet, delicious. It melts in your mouth with the most satisfying crunch. It's just incredible. Pretty much everyone who tries it gets excited to share it because it gets a real reaction every time. And I'm speaking from experience here, folks. A friend of the show, Dane Thompson, was just <laughs> telling us the other day that he wishes his local lolly shop, as we call them in Australia, or a confectionery store, uh, sold crack corn because it's just that good. And as big fans of the MJ cast, crack corn wanted to do something extra special for our listeners. They created fan packs. It is the best crack corn deal available anywhere, and it comes with a little special surprise just for our listeners who head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast to try crack corn for the very first time. It's beautifully packaged and presented in what they call an Ecolux gift box, very sharp. These fabulous fan packs are shipped directly to your door or that of a friend who is about to experience crack corn for the very first time. It really is just such a memorable experience. You're trying something totally new, and folks, it is ridiculously delicious. Addictive. And these fabulous sets are less than $20 US after a built-in discount just for listeners of the MJ cast. They're gorgeous and sure to impress. So grab some crack corn for yourself, or maybe ship it out to somebody else as a gift uh, during COVID, something to totally be enjoyed at home. So head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast to try this unique small batch snack. I have a feeling that this is really, really going to blow up. It's already blown up. That makes this your chance to be one of the very first to try it. So head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast right now and snag one of those fan packs Throw it on this Halloween as you're watching Ghosts or Thriller. Thank you, Crack Corn, for being the MJ Cast's very first sponsor and the main sponsor for this episode of the MJ Cast. Right, 
let's get back to it, Travis. Okay, so Travis, we're now moving right into the history era section of our interview, and I'm particularly excited about this because this year, 2020, um, although (laughs) not so many great things associated with it, as we know, there is one great thing, and this year is the 25th anniversary of the History Album, a great cause for celebration within the community. Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, it's it seems like forever ago. I don't know if you uh, feel that way as well. I mean, it feels like yesterday to me, really, because I can remember moments. But yeah, so much time has passed. I posted something yesterday, and I mistook dangerous for history, and fans are always quick to correct me. And I was like, wow, that's right. They're right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't know. The, the moments, they just were so magical. They run together sometimes. We talked about the difficulties Michael had towards the end of the Dangerous Tour, and then there was that little bit of time between the end of the tour and history. When you started to get back into working with Michael for that new era of history, did you as a team have the sense of that this was a big comeback after some tribulations? I don't know if I necessarily felt it was a comeback. It was just time for Michael to share new content, in my opinion. I remember during that time, one of the first things we did was the trailer, the teaser, the history teaser. We filmed that in Budapest with uh, military installations from different parts of the world. And that was just amazing. And uh, around that time was ghosts. And sort of they all kind of went together, you know, at the launch of the album. It was a great time. Absolutely. I actually just last weekend interviewed Stephen Witsit, who is Michael's uh, photographer during that time. That's amazing. Amazing. Yes, I haven't heard that name in a while. Oh, that's wonderful. He actually wanted me to say hi to you. (laughs) Oh, my God. That just warms my heart. He was so gracious and shared imagery with us. And because some of those iconic shots, we'd see them in magazines or we'd see them in the newspaper. But he was one of the photographers and making sure that we had some of the imagery. That was a great time. We were able to take some some of our dancers from the U.S., New York and L.A., we went to Budapest and filmed at the Danube River. And we had military installations, I think, from Prague, maybe Hungary, um, and some other Eastern European areas. And we got to work with, you know, the artillery specialists and really interface with their military installations to choreograph a really, really strong piece. And um, fortunately, it did get a big global premiere in many theaters and it you know set the tone for what would be known as the history era absolutely i i love it and and it, what seems to be a trend in your collaborations with michael jackson is this military theme that's running all the way through the history era in the they don't care about us performance and then of course drill and this is it yeah michael's appreciation of military was infectious and being the historian that he was, not just for music things, but for world history, his philosophy was always that if those big military installations you see around the world were repurposed to represent love and peace, how powerful would that be? Mm. So what Michael did was take the language that we know, you know, and some of it being propaganda, et cetera, and He took control of that and presented it in a way that was suggestive of love and unity and understanding and, you know, a global community, 
you know, I think that was his intention there. So you'll see that some of the the text, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's abstract text. And he replaced some of the iconography that was always associated with death and war. And he turned it on its ear. And the attempt was to make it about positivity and love and, you know, sort of global care for each other and the planet. I love that. I love that. So many things that Michael did were... Uh, there was always groups of people misconstruing it and taking it the wrong way. And and that's what happened with that video to some degree with people comparing it to Triumph of the Will, the Nazi propaganda film. But the way you explained it just then of Michael being aware of that and turning it on its head, brilliant. I love it. Absolutely. Oh, and he was masterful at it, you know, because the precision, the discipline, the commitment, the honor, you know, many of the things that military installations have innately are good. It's just what they're purposed for that was the issue and remains a problem in our world. So that was his language. He's saying, we come in peace. You know, we are an army of of peaceful, informed, enlightened individuals. Imagine a world that is not filled with hate and famine and global warming and all these things we suffer from. In our History 25 roundtable, we did a track-by-track analysis on the album, and the first song of the album and the first single, Scream, was such a strong, powerful Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis collaboration, and you had a huge part of choreographing that video, right? Yes, it was an honor. I'd love it if you could walk us through that video and what the relationship was like between you and the the choreographers, Michael and his sister. Uh, It was... One of the most iconic moments in my career in that having gotten my start with Janet at 19 on the Rhythm Nation tour and being in the midst of my career with Michael, it was a full circle moment. And to be able to collaborate with Lavelle Smith Jr. and Tina Landon and Sean Cheeseman in creating ideas that Michael and Janet would mold was one of the most important collectives I feel that I've ever been a part of, of course, directed by the great Mark Romanek. And the process was so incredible. The song remains incredible. And the visuals that we were able to create all together were just stunning. And I think that the finished product surpassed my expectations. I knew it would be special. I knew it would be amazing. I knew that it was edgy. I knew that it was an important moment in history because Michael and Janet were together. Everything that went into creating it was really a labor of love because we really understood the value of the moment. We filmed at Universal's back lot. There were numerous hours of preparation. We had rehearsals in, in California, in Los Angeles in separate locations at first. I had the lovely pleasure of going back and forth between Hidden Hills, California and Burbank, California, between our rehearsal spaces to collect and share data, movement, choreography, ideas. And in those weeks, we were able to craft choreography that was simple, but intricate and memorable and I think so appropriate to mesh Janet and Michael's worlds. I got to 
be a fan of them both in the moment, you know, seeing them both have their individual and very different creative processes and how they collaborated and the immense amount of respect and love that they have for each other and how they were able to help us all to achieve such a great work of art. And it's still one of the one of the pieces people like to talk about, and I'm happy to always oblige. Yeah, I love it as well. I think it's an amazing finished product. There's, um, I've heard, though, that there were a lot of sets and different things that were built and filmed in that didn't make it into the, the video. One of the things I remember is that there were sets we didn't even get to film on. You know, no one ever, you know, they never got filmed. Time constraints. The undertaking was so immense. You know, both artists had different, preferences, you know, time of day to film, the slickness or non-slickness of the surface, the direction of the lighting, you know, they just both were instrumental in the whole thing. And so when we get down the pike and we're out of time and we haven't even filmed on all the sets, what we got was so amazing that it didn't matter. Yeah. But I got to see uh, one of the sets I remember distinctly was just all of these police sirens, you know, like in a 360 radius around the entire space. And, you know, of course, maybe with some gimbal technology and some photography techniques, I'm sure Mark Romanek had a great plan for it. In terms of the working relationship between everybody on the video, was it, I mean, there's different groups of choreographers involved, Janet's people, I guess, and you and Tina Landon working as well on it. What was the relationship like? Was it one where everyone was trying to get their ideas in and, and win out or was it very collaborative and, and productive? No, it was incredibly collaborative. The challenge was editing. There were so many great ideas. The challenge was packing those four eight counts of eight with the most critical information. You know, we were able to do that. And it was various versions, different incarnations. And then we all arrived at a version that we thought, okay, this is the one. And so that was the one we committed to memory and rehearsed extensively. But everybody, of course, brought their A-game. It's Michael and Janet. They were both at such heights in their careers that, you know, it was a blessing and an honor to be involved. So it was a welcomed challenge. You want to see your ideas in the finished product, but you also know that you want the product to be the best it can. So you have to approach it with that lens, you know, and do what's best for the moment. What version of this do they both look their best at? Which version of this do they both look complementary to each other? Which parts should be absolutely in unison? Which parts should not be in unison? What is the first moment? What is the last moment? And then you fill in the blanks from there. At that time, we didn't have cell phones with cameras and things like that. We used video cameras and for security reasons. And, that you know, that was the beginning of you starting to hear with people's albums being leaked online and information being disseminated early. And so Michael nor Janet wanted to take the chance of having all of these videotapes, you know, rehearsal videotapes floating around. So one of my jobs in that experience was to learn all the choreography, show it to the other group, learn that group's changes and requests, show it to the other group and vice versa until we whittle it down to the version we all agreed on. And then at that time, we came together and rehearsed in the same room. But prior to that time, they had rehearsed in different places, you know, wanting to be 
the best version of themselves when they arrived at the shared rehearsal. So a lot of running around for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was great. And a, and a wonderful driver and assistant that Michael had for years named Gary. He was also the one who would take us to and from Neverland when it was necessary to work there. We spent a lot of time on the road together for good reason. And following Scream, it would have been time to get ready for Michael's History World tour. I don't. I read a statistic the other day of how many sheer millions of people that he performed <laughs> to around the world. It just like blew my right. mind. Right, right, right. Mine too. Mine too. I mean, you got to realize that in those moments, in in the midst of it, there was very little time to sort of sit and relish and think about what we were doing it was like go 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 we have a whole itinerary we're doing it we're on stage we're off stage we're on a plane we're on a bus we're da, da, da. you know it is only in these times of reflections that you know it blows my mind too you know but i remember being in israel i remember nearly a hundred thousand people in a field i remember going to tunis and you know knowing that even the infrastructure that they had we had to improvise with the building of the stage like the stage was so immense that sometimes if the local team isn't prepared and has enough equipment you know it's going to be hard and so i just remember one of the shows there that there was an entirely different show going on under the stage to keep all of the beams and structural foundation strong enough to lift the stage so nothing collapsed and there were no accidents you know like so a lot a lot of effort went into these shows just as much behind the scenes as on the stage. And what were the rehearsal processes like for history? I've, I've heard it was fairly grueling being in a very hot airport hangar. Yeah. Some of them were in Sony Pictures in LA, and some, I think, were at Barker Hangar, Van Nuys. I get them confused. I know we did Ghosts in a Hangar too. So it's either in Santa Monica or in, in Van Nuys. But yeah, I remember it being hot. But I didn't care about any of that. I mean, at that time, I was like in my element, you know, and living my dream. So yeah, love it. Great. Sweating. No problem. You know, it was just part of it, you know, because it also prepared us for those particular shows where it would be humid and it would be hot and we would have to figure it out. Conversely, there were some shows where it was freezing cold. Nothing about those rehearsals was any less than magical for me. Um, I get to see videos now, people send to me like of those rehearsals and I have like the white hair and stuff. And I just remember seeing <laughs> some of those moments. They were just great. You know, the Talawagas were there. Lori was there. You know, Lavelle was there. Kenny was there. Michael Cotton. And of course, Michael Jackson and, and Taco was there. Yeah. Saw one of those videos just a few days ago. And looking back on that history era, what would you say would be a highlight of the tour for you? I think one of the highlights of the history tour was really having achieved the goal not only of working with Michael, but of being involved in that very important creative process with him and making history with him and being respected as an artist and a creator at the highest levels, also being compensated for it and being respected. And I think that all of those things, I was just so grateful. The hard work paid off. All was well in my world during that time. Well, who knows? Hopefully this year, the tour might see a some kind of high-definition release or something like that in, in honor of, it, of its uh, anniversary. Perhaps. I sure hope so. Ghosts. So this is a fan favorite. It's one of Michael's masterpieces when you look back on his catalog. Incredible, incredible film. It started, though, way before when it 
came out in its second version, didn't it? I think it started out in around the 93 era. Yes, it was uh, first imagined with a completely different set of songs, different dancers. We had different choreography, different capabilities with regards to photography and production. It was due to the latter that Michael decided to put it on hold and wait until not only wait, but contribute to the development of new technologies that would allow the piece ghosts to have the best chance of being as innovative as possible and not seeing the very same effect that you've seen somewhere else. You know, Michael wanted to push the envelope. And at the time, the technology wasn't able to help produce the ideas that he had and was so passionate about. So he waited. He decided to wait and knew that innovations were being made in production and that we'd be among the first to be able to you know, implement certain techniques in the creation of the piece. So it meant that much to him. He waited and made the investment to try and ensure that it could be the best it could be. My favorite part about Ghosts is definitely the choreography and the individual attention to detail for all of the different dancers, characters and costumes. Yep. I can just get lost in even just a still photograph of all the dancers. It's a Brilliant. Thank you. Me too. Yeah, me too. Wasn't it great? Wasn't it great? It was great. It, we made a movie, you know, and Michael was very, very clear. We don't make videos. We've never filmed anything on videotape. We don't put out videos. So by definition, we don't make videos. We make films. And, you know, the great Stan Winston, rest his soul, was just a wonderful partner in the creation with his effects and his masterful eye and his warm spirit. He was just great. Seeing he and Michael collaborate was just sort of special in itself, especially when Michael would be dressed as the mayor, you know, with his fat suit on and really directing scenes as the mayor. It was kind of funny. And it spoke to Michael's artistry and brilliance because, you know, if he's wearing that big suit, he could very easily just kind of hide out in his trailer and wait until he's needed. But he was there on set, directing shots, placing garments, placing people, building camera shots, down on the floor, looking through a lens, you know, directing and, and filmmaking remained chief among Michael's passions. And Ghost was a perfect example of an idea that he created with Stephen King that he saw through different incarnations and development like a feature film. When it was finally created and completed, it launched in different parts of the world, but not in America at the time. So our appreciation and our um, reaction from our friends here was delayed. 2017 was the first ghost premiere in the U.S. Well, certainly in L.A. that I attended. But it was another one of those signature pieces that it was just a joy to participate in. It was hard, you know, especially uh, also dancing in it, too, for myself and, and being in makeup 40 days and 49ths, I like to say. <laughs> but um, going through that and the wire work and the green screen work and the three hours to get in, two hours to get out of makeup, just the enormous commitment it was. It, it was just something that we are still so very proud of, appreciate, you know, all the attention it gets. It's an uh, absolute masterpiece. Now, do you have any specific recollections or stories about conceiving the choreography for that film? 
we always start every process the same way. We listen to the music and it's going to tell you what it needs, whether that means colors or shapes or words or a series of steps, mood. So in that, we knew that there was so much detail in the music. So that gave us so much permission with the movement. And we took, I don't know how long, well, over four years, you know, creating, saving, creating, saving, reviewing, editing, creating, saving, reviewing, starting over, reviewing, inviting Barry Lather to join, creating, editing, creating, you know, for a long time. And we had all of these chunks, which was our vocabulary. And then we just started to sort of put it on the dancers' bodies and say, this works for this moment for these dancers, okay, or this music is telling us to do this. Editorially and story-wise, we need to have hit this plateau by now. So it's like a math equation. The beauty of it is that we had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Not every creative process affords you the time to have various versions of one piece to be able to take the best parts of to create a final. And Ghost did that. And um, Heliopolis Productions, um, the family project, I think it was referred to during that time. Family thing or or something like that. Yeah, family thing. Yeah. So it was an an entire process that was allowed to have a beginning, middle and end. During this time, you worked very closely with Lavelle Smith Jr. And Ghost is a project he's particularly proud of, especially dance moves like um, I think he describes one of them as the hanging man. Correct. So awesome to watch. Now, your relationship with Lavelle, you've spoken about how deep it was and how much he was an inspiration to you. Would you say that Ghosts was the pinnacle of your and his collaborative partnership as well? I'm not sure. I I am not sure. It's certainly, it's certainly in the top three. But it is, uh, it's, just, it's hard to quantify that because they all were so different and all took such different uh, amounts of uh, energy, but I love Ghost in that we did get to create from the very first step to the last mm-hmm. and were empowered by Michael to not only imagine beyond the movement, but how it's filmed, how it's edited. I worked on um, very closely with music editors and sound engineers Brad Buxer, Michael Prince, to create the actual performance track, where the mutes are, what instruments remain, which ones fade up, creating, scoring it, turning the musical compositions from the album into the score for the film. Being empowered by Michael to work in all of those various capacities and even be part of a a challenge that he gave us for the editing. You know, he put us with an editor, he was with an editor, Stan was with an editor, and we had a competition about editing the sections, and the sections that won in those competitions saw the final piece. Wow. You know, so everything was not only a creative milestone, but it was growth, it was learning, and Michael took that time to give us that opportunity and give us that knowledge and allow us to sit with 
the best editors in Hollywood and take our time to assemble what we thought the piece should look like. And then he would take it. He would consider it. He would say, I love this part. I love that part. I love this part. I bet you can make that better. And we go back and try again. And then the reward is seeing that work, the movement, the styling, the character development, the casting, and all of those decisions show up in the final piece. That is, you can't buy that education. I'm also lucky enough to know two Michael Jackson fan friends, my co-host Q and friend of the show, film editor Paul Black, who both were in attendance when Ghosts premiered in Sydney in 1996. They were sitting in the audience watching it with, um, well, Michael Jackson was right there and I'm also assuming that you were there as well. Yes, yes. And they talk about the early version that premiered at Cannes and in Sydney as actually being quite different musically from the one that came out later on home video. The differences in Ghosts. Yeah, the first version had steppers in it, and we never included any of that footage in the second version, which had all jazz dancers and lockers and poppers in it, many of them legendary, Pop and Taco, Pop and Pete. Jeffrey Daniels was even involved. Most Def was involved in the final version. And Shayna. I don't think that there were different edits. I could be mistaken. I don't know everything. But the final edit that we delivered, I know we showed it in Japan, Australia, um, probably somewhere else. But then I know LA around October. I really hope I get the chance one day to see it in a cinema as well. Hopefully, crossing my fingers. You gotta, and it holds up. It really does. It holds up. The effects, the acting, it holds up. It really, really does. And I know what he meant. You know, if we hadn't waited for the technology to catch up, then some of the effects might not have been as lasting. But they hold up and goes pretty good, I gotta say. All right, Travis, let's take another little break, this time to talk about the MJ Cast's official merch shop. You can go there by going to the mjcast.com slash shop and here you can find seven great designs that you can apply to lots and lots of great merch items. I want to talk about each of the designs now. So these seven designs I've thrown together myself. Uh, I'm not a graphic designer or anything like that, but I've, I've tried my best to make a few things that people might like. Uh, and, and getting them on, on all those different types of merch that I'm going to talk about is really one of the best ways to support the MJ cast. And I'll talk about why shortly. So the most popular design that we've got, it's called our sunset design or sunset logo. And it's our main logo in a sunset kind of 80s cool design. And uh, we love it when people get that one because we know they're repping the MJ cast logo out there in public. We've also got a design called nine logos, which is all of our seasonal logos in one spot and a bit of a grid pattern. Really cool. Uh, We've got one called the Jacksons and Captain EO and seven albums and they're text-based typography designs where you can get a list of say all the Jackson's names or all the Captain EO characters or Michael Jackson's seven solo albums in those cool Helvetica typeface uh, lists on your shirt or whatever you want to get it on. Really cool. And then we've got two new designs that we've just added to the shop recently. 
One of them is called the Pixel Tour, and the other one is Victory. The Pixel Tour is one of my favorites. I spent a lot of time on that. I've used pixel art for these two designs. The Pixel Tour features Michael standing there in all of his opening tour costumes from the Victory Tour, Bad Tour, Dangerous, and History in a real cool 80s kind of design and then a new one as well called victory which has all of the jackson brothers in pixel art retro design standing there in their costumes from the victory tour you got to check these out at the mjcast.com shop now you can get these designs on all kinds of things t-shirts hoodies mugs travel mugs for coffee phone cases for your new iphone 12 Prints and artworks, tote bags, all kinds of things ready to go. Even masks to be as safe as you possibly can be during COVID. Now, our shop is uh, serviced through Redbubble. These guys are great. Redbubble provide excellent service. Not only do they locally print on really high-quality material for T-shirts and and other products, they offer great after-service support if you need to contact them for whatever reason. All proceeds from the MJCast's shop go to show running costs, charity, and new podcasting equipment to make our show as great as it possibly can be for you. Promote Michael Jackson and the MJCast all at the same time by grabbing some merch from the MJCast shop, grab a t-shirt, go out and about in public, and rep the king of pop. You can get all of these great things from the mjcast.com slash shop. And don't forget to send through some photos of you with your new MJCast merch to the mjcast at icloud.com. And we would be more than happy to share those pics on social media of you with some great merch. Thanks for listening to the MJCast and supporting us through going to our shop. And we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Let's get back to it. Let's start moving into this is it. This is a, a topic that one one thing I really appreciate you are when I see your interviews is that you don't sort of shy away from talking about some of the complex things that went on in this era. There's a lot of amazing positive things to dig into in this one and then some sad ones as well. Can you walk us through the very, very beginnings of this is it? When did it start to evolve? I remember Kenny and I being in Las Vegas working on the opening of the Encore Resort and Casino and Kenny's cell phone ringing and and his eyes got big and he was mouthing to me, it's Michael, it's Michael. I said, great, have the call, have the call. They talked for a little while and then uh, he handed me the phone and I heard Michael and he said, Travis, and I said, uh, yes, sir. And he said, it's time, this is it, this is it. It's time, it's time to do it. I said, great, we were just waiting on you, great. So you and Kenny come see me. Great. We're on our way. You know, as soon as we finish here in Vegas, we'll come see you. That was really the beginning. And um, shortly after, we started our meetings at Carrollwood. And then got into specifics of what it would be. And Michael was very clear. He had already partnered with AEG and Brandy Phillips and had several conversations about what's possible and you know, we just got into the process. You know, we knew exactly what to do. We were just waiting for the moment. But what was new was that we were going to be able to have residencies instead of such a grueling touring schedule, which was always the most difficult part of the tour, the time zones and the sleeping patterns. But this was going to be, this is it, was going to be a, a touring residency that would allow Michael to be in a venue for a number of weeks before needing to change location. 
So I'm very excited about that. We started the process and it was, um, it was first about, you know, what the songs would be and who the players would be, you know, building the band, determining the musical director, auditioning dancers, figuring out costumes, all the production aspects and elements and what the narrative would be. And then one of the first things we did was allow the fans to vote online about what the actual songs of the set list would be based on their wishes. And so the whole thing was was magical, uh, mostly, um, you know, but it had it had its challenges, as everyone knows. So with the voting, because I remember being so excited, I went to AEG's website and I voted and I made sure to vote for some really abstract <laughs> ones that we hadn't seen Michael do before, some Good. unbreakable and different things. Cool. Do you know if Michael personally reviewed the results of that survey? Oh, of course he did. Oh, no, he did. He had a notebook that we would keep full of data for him to have. We would review it. We would go through our notebooks. We would look at the latest tallies of the songs. You say, oh, my God, okay, this one's in the lead today. Okay, you know, so it was, we enjoyed it. We loved it. We loved being able to have the direct contact with the fans that we hadn't had before, ever, in creation. So to be able to really take into account what people have always waited to hear or see live was a great source of of joy for us. Was there any surprises? Mm, Let's see. Just so happens, all this foreign time, I've been able to organize the office. (laughs) (laughs) So I am actually looking at, this is it, notebook, and... This is the latest, which was the last, uh, which would have been our last fan totals for songs. Results so far from the internet fans want to see most. It's no surprise that Billie Jean was number one, Smooth Criminal was number two, Man of the Bear number three, Thriller number four, five was Beat It, six Dirty Diana, seven Black or White, eight Bad, nine The Way You Make Me Feel. 10, don't stop till you get enough. 11, want to be starting something. 12, you rock my world. 13, rock with you. 20, remember the time, uh, which was lovely to see because we had never, you know, really gotten to realize remember the time live on tour. Earth song, dangerous. 16, 17, you are not alone. 18, I just can't stop loving you. 19, they don't care about us. 20, heal the world. Wow. Okay. Interesting. That was the top 20. Yeah at the last tally. And of course we added others to that list and started to make sections that were, you know, montages or uh, mashups of different songs together. It was interesting to hear You Rock My World pretty high in that list, but obviously that didn't make it into the show. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had Smooth Criminal, of course. That was our gangster moment. Dangerous was no longer going to be a gangster moment, so that was going to be a new fresh you know, moment. Yeah, that was the top 20. And then others immediately followed with human nature given to me. Who is it? Scream, PYT, another part of me, Stranger, Jam, Liberian Girl, Off the Wall. That's the top 30. That's pretty awesome. And I think Billie Jean, yeah, Billie Jean at this time had over 40,000 votes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, of course. In those early days when you were at Carolwood working, my understanding was that it was almost like a reunion where 
some of the dancers that were on those previous tours, like Lavelle and Rich and Tone, and these guys were back all together. That was our hope, but that wasn't the reality. How come it wasn't able to eventuate into a collaborative reunion? Well, we really, really wanted that to happen. Lavelle and I hadn't worked together since 98. Rich and Tone had, at that point, come into their own as really successful choreographers and were working with Madonna at the time. Their schedule didn't permit it because of their commitment to Madonna. Lavelle had already started to start doing some training with Michael, and then Kenny and I came into the fold, and then we tried for a few days all together with Kevin Dorsey and like many of the previous team, but what ultimately was to be was a mixture of returning people and new people. And that was the way Michael wanted it, so that is what we did. Do you think that hit some of those people pretty hard? Like Kevin's recollection of it is that he assembled the musical side of things, the performers in the band, and that when he arrived, basically, as the, um, you know, two rehearsals, AEG kind of abruptly told him, you're not involved anymore, and he was really shocked. Well, I'm not sure about what the chain of events was with Kevin prior to my coming involved with This Is It, but I know that the conversations that originated with us being at the Encore in Las Vegas, where Kenny answered Michael's call, was about Kenny directing. So if at that point Kenny is just signing on to direct, I don't know how any of the other players could have been engaged already. So I think there is probably where the confusion was. But like I said, I wasn't privy to any of the conversations prior to my coming on um, at Kenny and Michael's request and doing my job. Understood. So at Carrollwood, could you talk about the rehearsals there and what they were like and the warm-up sessions and all of that kind of thing? We would work, let's see, uh, get there and uh, like in the afternoon and prior, Michael would be working with Lou Ferrigno <laughs> on an endurance training and um, some weight training. And I thought that was amazing. You know, seeing the Incredible Hulk training Michael was awesome. So they would work out before me and getting there. And then when I arrived, we would review whatever dance piece was coming up or whatever dance piece we were choreographing. We would jump around. So we do some preparation for the evening session where we go to the venue and work with Kenny and the dancers in the band and all of the other uh, staff of the team. Our days would sort of start small, just sitting on the floor, going through a game plan, we get up, we work on drill most days, we'd work on Smooth Criminal, we'd work on Dangerous at some point, we'd listen to music, we would watch the news, you know, we would brainstorm and workshop and review in preparation for the next uh, group rehearsal. And so we did that every day. I love those times. The children were there, they'd come in and out of the room. Oftentimes we'd have lunch together. It was just wonderful seeing him interact with his family and being able to balance his work and his, and his home life. At that time, I'm assuming, well, did you get any sense at all that Michael was not excited about the amount of dates or anything like that? Or it was just positive, positive, positive? No, I think it was, it was always positive because the purpose for the show was so great. That we, we, we just, you know, certain things that may have um, 
you know, annoyed you in the past just didn't, you know, priorities were different. You know, this show was more about more than just about selling records or, you know, doing anything. It was a global emergency, you know, that he was seeing us skidding toward. And this is it was meant to be that wake up call. Um, and boy, do I wish it would have happened. You know, look at where we are now. Um, but, you know, so coming into all of those rehearsals, you know, we knew there, there was a responsibility, you know, to the content, you know, but, but greater than that to humanity that this show needed to figure itself out, you know, no matter what all the politics may have been, no matter what, you know, uh, any misunderstandings, none of that rose to the occasion of what the experience was for. So when the, the additional dates were added, I didn't sense that Michael was like pissed or anything. He's just like, oh boy, those are made. They, they sold out so quick. They got and more dates. You know, it was, it was almost like a boy, oh boy, wow. You know, there's really a great interest in what we're doing, you know? So it wasn't distressful or anything like that. And plus the, the shows, the amount of shows we do, you know, we were, we were crafting something that we wanted him to enjoy as well. So there was enough time off between shows, you know, for the body to recover. You know, we were thinking about all of that and keeping all of that in mind when creating This Is It. Are there any elements of the show that fans may not know fully about or that weren't fully rehearsed? Yeah, all of the the many elements just did not get completed um, or, you know, weren't finalized simply because of the tragedy that happened. But people know that we were planning 3D, but I don't think that people get the full idea of what that immersive experience was going to be. You know, it wasn't just three, it was 4D because of certain other techniques that we were able to get to happen on a stadium, you know, on an arena size scale um, and never been done before and still hasn't. So I, I, I just hate that we didn't, you know, get to, you know, really introduce, you know, some of those ideas, but that's okay. It's okay. I think once when we spoke, you even told me that a participant's experience would start even as soon as when they exited the tube train. Right. Yes. Yes. Our experience w was not limited to the stage or the arena. The exterior of O2 would have, you know, would lend itself to the story and what the aesthetic would be just emanating out from the stage all the way into the you know, all the way into the subway station, all the way to, you know, as soon as you approach the arena, you would start your experience. And of course that would continue, you know, in, you know, in the queue and into the, all of the vendors and, you know, whatever the concessions, I mean, the entire thing was thought out and what, you know, because yeah, it was just more than a show. It was more than a concert. It really was going to be a happening and experience, you know, a global moment. Wow. And had all the makings of being that. Mm -hmm. Let's dig in on Dangerous here. So, I mean, your collaborative effort started in the early 90s on Dangerous. And, and in my opinion, this is just my humble opinion, but the MTV VMA Dangerous is just, for me, 
the quintessential pinnacle dangerous thank you the song continued to evolve in mj and friends the work you guys did on um the hbo show that didn't happen what where was dangerous ending up what was it in its latest incarnation that we we've never seen we played with different movie themes that were some of our favorites you know good bad and the ugly in the mtv version was a movie theme that sort of came in in a breakdown and uh dangerous this is it completely went away from the gangster place and into more of a rebellious sort of street punk place. You know, we took inspiration from cult classic films like Clockwork Orange and, you know, some obscure pieces that Michael would know about, or I would say, hey, I was always a fan of, you know, this uh, this Japanese show that I used to watch when I was a kid called Space Giants, and it had this futuristic thing, and they could turn into rockets. And Dangerous, its language continued to evolve. We got to add to it. We got to reimagine it several times, and it remained in process. Actually, on the morning of Michael's passing, we had just created the final mix, you know, edit of the song, Mike McKnight and I, and it was just heartbreaking, too, because... In that moment that we were we were making such headway and creating such great content, the unthinkable happened and it devastated us and remains an incredibly difficult pill to swallow. Mm. I got to do it with the dancers once in Japan. I got to perform it. We did, I think, NHK or Nippon TV. We did like a mini concert, two actually. One was live, one was televised. Sony organized in it and allowed me to take the dancers. They had a very long process. They had an incredibly long casting, rehearsal, learning, training process, and they never got... It's like the athletes now who won't be able to compete in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. One of my tasks and one of the things that I really took a lot of time to do was try to create experiences that they got to perform because no one got to see them perform and they didn't get to feel it and they didn't get... They didn't get that payoff that so many of us know from getting to perform live with Michael. So one of the things we did, in addition to going to the Philippines, work with the prisoners, is the entire group went to Japan. And we did two mini concerts. And we did Dangerous, This Is It version. It was closure for me, too, because Dangerous being the first thing we ever created together and having created the last version with Michael to finally get to perform it for an audience with his dancers was just a blessing for me among my last public performances. I want to do a change of gears here and talk a little bit about the fashion and costuming of the show. Um, Zaldi, fashion designer, worked with Michael very closely for This Is It. And Michael was also working with Michael Bush and his partner. I can't remember his first name, but Mr. Tompkins. Dennis. 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 Right. Again, like I want to know about the vibe between these camps, sort of like uh, how different choreographers would work with Michael. Was was Michael all in on the Zoldi costumes or was he going to pick and choose between these different designers? Great question. When I was uh, made associate director of the concert and um, it was allowed to continue to really explore my ideas for costuming, you know, which dated all the way back to the history tour and the soldiers, you know, the, the sh- literally shopping, you know, at Sharibari in New York and buying the leather trousers, the motorcycle trousers we wear on tour and finding the boots on Melrose and 
seeing a, a couture coat that we took as inspiration for the military jackets and having Rich and Tone dressed as MTV statues. I love all of that. And to now be directing with Kenny and Michael and be able to add different layers and different dynamics to these classic shapes that we've come to know, I suggested that my friend Zaldi be able to collaborate with us. And I called Zaldi and told him that I'd love for him to get on a plane, come to LA as soon as he can, because we're working on This Is It, and I'd like for Michael to meet it. Zaldi got on the plane, he came, and my idea was always to have Michael having options. Meaning, when we did history, the opening look was always Spaceman, right? Mm -hmm. The gold, metallic Spaceman. And it stayed pretty consistent every show. Sometimes he would need to have replacement versions because they would just wear out. So I started to think, hey, if he had options, every show would be a little bit different. People would be waiting to see what he arrives in. People would appreciate, fans would really pick up on some of the fashion choices that are being made now that would set future trends that we're seeing play out in Virgil Abloh for Louis Vuitton, et cetera. Potentially be able to have a retail component so you can buy these items at the venue in the moment. And Michael was all aboard because he, uh, he, he knew I'd always been obsessed with shoes. And he always would joke with me about my shoes. They were a big deal. <laughs> and so all of this made a lot of sense to him. And he said, and yeah, and we should have them in the stores and we can sell this and this could be apparel and we can, you know, I was like, exactly. So Bush and Dennis Tompkins, legends, legendary legends. They are costumers. And I felt that if there was the balance with Zaldi as a designer we'd be able to find somewhere in the middle a consumer-friendly apparel line that the fans can immediately buy at the show and after. That was the idea. And this would also afford Michael to have a Bush version and a Zaldi version of Smooth Criminal, of Thriller, of Billie Jean, so that it always stayed fresh for Michael too. He can decide, I wanna wear the Zaldi top with the Bush pants. I want to wear all bush. You know, he could have that sort of flexibility and freedom so he could feel like every show was a little different as well. So all of it had a purpose. And I think that the parties involved out of their mutual respect for each other and, you know, our collective respect for each other, I think everybody got along well, you know, but that was the intention never to say one is better than the other or one makes more sense. No, there was a vision that involved both design teams that ultimately would yield a new line of apparel that the fans could buy. That is exciting. I've never heard it explained quite like that. So thank you. That's really gives a lot of clarity. Clarity. My pleasure. It was my idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> very awesome. I had known Zaldi for years and seen the work that he did with Gwen Stefani and spent time with him in New York. And my manager at the time was a dear friend, is, is a dear friend of his and um, Christopher Demers. And so I said, you know, 
Chris, you know, and, and I told Saldi when meeting him, I said, if I, whenever it is time to work with Michael again, I think he will love you. You know, I think he, I think, I think he will love you. And so fortunately, Michael trusted my judgment. He went with it. He loved it. We had Rushka Bergman, who's editor at, at Vogue, who was doing his personal styling, who put him in Givenchy and all of these beautiful day looks, you know, the shoulders that really he was just bringing back because he did it years ago in Captain Neo. To be able to see his influence in fashion come full circle and now be able to put, you know, it's, you know, be able to put a, a new energy like Zaldi with his aesthetic, with Michael's classic, legendary, iconic pieces and creations by Tompkins and Bush, it just seemed like what this is it was about, you know, mixing the classic with the new and being able to find somewhere in the middle a new approach and a fresh approach on all of these legendary historic pieces that I as a fan and a curator do not want to disrupt but add to. I've got a few quick questions here from, uh, well, one of them is actually from a listener. Believe it or not, coincidentally, 20 minutes before we started talking, I got an email from one of our listeners, Porter Wolf, and Porter said, I really hope one day you get to talk to Travis Payne. (laughs) He had no idea. And then he said, if you ever get the chance to, please ask about Threatened, and this is it. Yeah. Yeah. That moment, when I saw it in the cinema for the first time, and I saw it a lot of times mm-hmm. in the cinema, but uh, when when Threatened came on and you and Michael are on that that rising garage door, I think you guys were calling yeah. it, uh-huh. um, and Michael is there twirling his fingers around and then the dancers yep. are spinning uh, yep. in response to that, that gave uh-huh. me absolute goosebumps all over my whole body. Good, good, <laughs> good, good. But that was it, and it's so wonderful. That's the first time we ever wrote it. That was the first time he ever wrote the, the the garage door. Wow. Yeah, in that moment. He's you know, cause we would say, Hey, let's say you wanna I wanna show you what it does, let's test it. He's like, Oh no, I can do it. And so that's <laughs> why I wrote it with him. <laughs> because it was the first time I was like, It's gonna move now. All right, we're going up. Okay, all right. In two more eights, you gotta go to the back for the pose. Okay, it's time. You know, so that what is what that exchange was happening. It was just really cool to hear some invincible love with speechless and threatened <laughs> yeah and that's rodney jerkins threatened if you look at gangster theme as a reference then you'd understand how in the monster sort of scary genre threatened is the is the newbie you know what i mean if you know thriller and ghost and that threatened would be that newbie you know that new energy that's in the same narrative it's like another movement and a symphony so it made sense to be added to the collection in that moment, in that section. Love it. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, Speechless, that moment, <laughs> we had done starting something pretty much near the front of the show, Dangerous and History, you know, and then the pose, you know, for photography and to catch our breath. And I said, you know what? Wouldn't it be funny? Wouldn't it be amazing? It's been like, I don't know how many years. Wouldn't it be so nice if you just broke into your love is magical to your fans? Wouldn't that be nice? He's like, I don't know. It's just, we're not doing that song. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not about that. It's not about doing that song. It's about what, just the first time we're hearing you talk after all these years. 
wouldn't it be nice to say that? It's like a little love note. He was like, I'll try it. We can try it. Let's try it. I said, okay, great. That one time he did it, we captured it. So we were able to put it in the film. That was awesome. For me sitting there and people reference that or, you know, watching people for their first time watching the movie and getting to that moment and starting to cry, like that moment I knew it would be special. It, I just had no idea how special. Yeah. I think for longtime fans, it was special because we'd been there through when he released Invincible and it was sabotaged by his record label. To hear him acknowledge those songs live was like, for us who'd been through that, was like, yes, yes, he's yep. doing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the point. I've been in that moment with him countless times on stage. It is a special moment. It is an exchange of kinetic energy in that silence, in that stillness. Many times the swell of the crowd gets louder during that time. Mm. So what you say after that silence has the ability to be so profound. Why not take it? Wow. Oh, man, the hair on my arms is like standing up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that was it. That's the point. Earth Song. In our conversations, a thread that's been going through them is how the messaging of This Is It really was all about the planet. Correct. Earth Song was such an incredible evolution with its introductory video uh, being mm-hmm. a totally new thing. There was going to be, a, I believe, a some kind of bulldozer or something come out on the stage at some point. Mm-hmm. Earth Song still remains my favorite song by Michael Jackson, composition, in fact. Because it has orchestra, it has layers, and it has phrasing. It is a composition. It was the jewel for This Is It and the reason for This Is It. Its messaging, even then, could not have been more on point given our current state of affairs on this planet. That was over 10 years ago. At that time, Michael Jackson was in a full-out panic about the state of the world. I don't think any of us really understood the gravity of what he was trying to say. I can say that in hindsight. I knew Heal the World. I knew we are the world. We know we travel to different places. He routes his concerts so that it will enrich the communities in which we play and make money for the families that are struggling. He would do those kinds of things. I understood that. I understood the philanthropy. I understood his philanthropic efforts. I got that. It is part of his brand. Not until Earth Song did he put it to us in a way that was so tragic and so devastating that we had no choice but to listen. Not just hear the song, but to listen to it and really understand it. This is it was to remind us of our responsibility to the planet. Earth song being the crowning jewel in that message. It's his loudest, most passionate and heightened ringing of the alarm that it was to be an opus. It was going to be all of our mixed media, all of the cast, the entire cast on the stage, daring people to to get involved and make a difference in the planet, encouraging people, 
urging people, begging people. With regards to the tractor, it wasn't a tractor, it was an excavator. I was driving down Wilshire Boulevard in LA, and at the intersection of Wilshire Boulevard and La Brea, we're getting subway, subway lines and things like that, which is great for transportation in, in LA. We, we, we need solutions to the traffic problem. But when you know how you drive by and it's boarded up and it says, excuse this mess, we're making LA better, da 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 da, whatever, wherever mm-hmm. you live. Yeah. And it's usually a picture, maybe the contractor, it'll be what the finished structure is going to look like, et cetera. I was sitting at the red light and I turned to the left and I saw an illustration of the piece of equipment that Michael wanted to create for this is it. The company that makes them, I believe, is the boring company. So it is an excavator that goes down and it tunnels out gigantic areas of land so that work or underground situations, you know, can happen. It stopped me in my tracks. It was so chilling for me. Because he's trying to say in that moment, you know, yeah, all this is great. Industry is great. But at what cost to the environment? It's a big question. It's a big question. So... And this was maybe three months ago that I saw this image and I I should have taken a picture of it, but it was literally almost exactly the sketch that Michael Jackson and Michael Cotton imagined for what this big piece of equipment would look like. You know, ours just had like another sort of appendage on the front that kind of looked like a corkscrew, but I had never seen it. And I thought we were creating some piece of a machinery that didn't exist. Maybe it did. Maybe Michael Jackson knew it was coming. Maybe he was trying to, you know, at least ask the question, is the industry worth the environment? I don't know. I just continue to remain a student. You know, I learn new stuff every day. I have had nothing but absolute respect for the the knowledge I've gained by orbiting Michael Jackson and being allowed into his creative space and being able to collaborate with him, you know, in the way we did. And I continue to be astounded by his foresight and his almost, not almost, but definitive prophetic abilities and what all that meant. Absolutely. It's, it's, Earth Song's my wife's favorite song, Michael Jackson's song, and it's so powerful. It would have been incredible to hear, and this is it for sure, especially as climate change is worsening all the time. I remember in the film, Michael even puts a date or a, or a year on it. He says, you know, I don't know how many years we've got to turn this around, but we need to do it right now. At that time, it was four. I watched an interview with the director, uh, Michael Moore. He did an interview yesterday that I saw in support of his latest film, And apparently, we have long surpassed that threshold. We have passed that threshold many times over, apparently, at this particular point. I wish Michael Jackson was here, because he'd be right there beside that guy, if it was even needed. And I watched it this morning, talking about his latest climate film, you know, and Al Gore. And, you know, before Al Gore, Michael Jackson was screaming, heal the world. He had been to Africa. He saw all these conditions in different parts of the world, impoverished nations that really don't make the news, was speaking from a much greater place of knowledge than than the ordinary person, you know, who doesn't really, really pay attention to world issues. And he felt that his responsibility was to the planet. That's what his art was about. That's what his, you know, he said, he, he told me, I was, he's like, I can go do a news conference and tell people statistics, but it's like, 
everybody does that. People still don't listen. You have to put it in a song. You have to uh, affect people on a physiological level. You have to get it into their consciousness. Then they will act. I've got one last question on, it's my last song question uh, for you. And it's uh, to do with this is it. And it's about Billie Jean. So obviously Michael is almost synonymous with Billie Jean dance wise, at least. And when many people around the world think of him, they, they have images of that particular song being performed um, mm-hmm. in rehearsals for this is it. What's interesting when you watch the movie is a lot of the songs are made up of um, cuts to various nights in which those songs were performed or rehearsal sessions. Billie Jean, I think is one of the only ones where it's one take. Is that mm-hmm. because the song was only rehearsed once? That was because, probably. I don't think we did it a lot because you always know that Billie Jean is Michael's baby. That is his creation singularly from the beginning to the end. It always has been. We've never touched it. We've only lit it. And that was it. So it was not high on the priority list of things to accomplish because it already exists. Got it's it. never the same every night. It is up to Michael's interpretation of the music. It has its own language. He can assemble the words however he wants. It is his. You just get out of the way. <laughs> let him do it. <laughs> you know, you do not try to even come to him with, you know, you let him come to you with ideas about Billie Jean. Let me put it that way. So that rehearsal was really for the band because he knows that he's a part of the band. You know, his body is an instrument. His voice is an instrument. That's part of the band. So in order for them to have the most effective rehearsal, he needs to do it with them at some point. That was that time. Just so they could get a feel of what he may do. So they were ready because like James Brown, he might call for a different moment to happen. You stay on your toes there. He might stop all the music. He might want to have, he might want to just stop the music and walk around. He may want to do whatever. And Billie Jean was that for him. So however he felt in the moment, they would have been rehearsed well enough to stay with him, just like the JVs stayed with James Brown. Did Michael ever express to you a, a frustration of having to sort of the fan expectation of doing the same kind of performance every time? No. No. What he did say was that you can't tease them and then change on them. Right. Don't. That's why he was questioning me with with putting speechless in the gap and starting something. He's like, don't tease them and then not do the song. You know, he thought that that may disappoint people. And I understood that. And I told him, I said, nah, I feel like I'm pretty tuned in to what the fans would want because I remain one. I really do. (laughs) So I am thinking about the show from the audience. To me, I don't think it's bad. He let it happen and entrusted our judgment for get the point good let's dance you know you want me like those things he he came to love them so he knows i know his position on it and i'm not going to suggest it unless i really think it you know should be heard you know unfortunately many of those times he listened other times he didn't want to no he wouldn't but many times he did Remembering back to the final days of This Is It rehearsals, what were the last words that you remember Michael ever saying to you? I love you more. We were saying goodbye for the night, presumably to return on the 25th, of course. Um, And as he was leaving, I said, good night, love you. He said, I love you more. 
and that would be the last exchange we had. Mm. Talk about the next day and how it unfolded from your point of view. Uh, I was on my way to our afternoon rehearsal and I got a call from my mom saying turn on the radio and apparently something had gone down at the house. It was a, you know, uh, ambulance called. So I called, uh, 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 I think I called Stacy and then I got a call back from Kenny saying don't go to the house, just come to the arena. So I went there and everything sort of played out in slow motion and ultimately, um, you know, after calls from different people trying to, you know, because everybody was sort of trying to figure out what was happening. Um, And so people's phones were ringing at first and then not because it it just started to get overwhelming. And um, uh, Kenny took a call from Debbie Allen and then we finally heard from one of our tour managers who was at the hospital and got confirmation Michael had indeed passed. We all were just dumbfounded and speechless and we left the arena. We went into a dressing room and we prayed. We lit a candle. We just sat in the dark for what seems like hours. Once we left the arena, we all congregated at a, at a restaurant somewhere. I don't even remember where and just stayed there for hours because I don't, everyone was in shock. And, and then of course it was time, uh, to just start to hear the reports and everything, you know, was just so horrible and horrific. And, um, yeah. And then I don't know how many days passed, but then it was about, uh, the memorial and what, what is that going to be? Um, you know, it seems like one day we were rehearsing at Staples for this is it. And the next day we were, you know, broadcasting, simulcasting around the world, this memorial that we put together, um, just through like tears and despair and just, just trying to stay strong for the family and figure it out and the kids. And it was just so many things to consider. And we got through it. We had a wonderful, um, you know, collection of artists who came through and lended their support. And, you know, we tried our best to honor Michael in the best way we knew how in that moment. And, you know, there was a funeral, there was, there was just things. And, um, and I just remembered like almost immediately once we got into that room and after we prayed, I said, we cannot be done. This is not it. We have not finished. You know, we have to finish this. We have to figure out how to finish this. And, you know, conversations were had and the decision was made to tell the story of what was to be through a documentary. Fortunately, we had archival footage that we had collected through the rehearsal process. And if we could piece it together some kind of way, we could at least let Michael's fans know what he was planning and how excited he was you know, how committed and involved he was, you know, we, no one had ever gotten to see his creative process. No one had ever gotten to see the extreme amount of detail he put into every aspect of his shows and his business. And mm. it, it, it was, it was time, you know, it was his greatest endeavor, not because of the workload, but because of his significance and its meaning and his emotional connection to it. And, and his purpose here being wrapped up partly in this is it. 
and it went away. So it just as devastating as the loss of our friend and mentor and idol and colleague and boss and brother was, I think that the best honor we could have done in that moment was to show exponentially more people than would have been able to catch the live tour, a documentary in theaters and in cable and on television and online. So millions more people get to see and hear and be reminded of the messages. So as a Michael fan, I'm fine. Give me it's some Michael is better than no Michael. So I was always in support of the film because I knew that even though every take wasn't perfect and every angle wasn't amazing and, and every look wasn't flattering, whatever, like I said before, all of that did not rise to the occasion of the purpose of the project in the first place. Yeah, it was very therapeutic and it was something I think we as a community needed at the time for closure. And I'm so glad that happened. As a result of what happened on the day, Dr. Murray went to trial and then to prison. And during the Murray NAEG trials, emails sort of came out that painted a pretty grim picture. Kenny Ortega said that Michael Jackson was losing weight and would need some kind of intervention. Bugsy said he was worried about Michael injuring himself. Michael Bearden said that there was going to be a lot more work to get Michael ready. At what point did people become worried from your recollection in the rehearsal process that this wasn't shaping up smoothly? I don't think in hindsight anyone could ever have understood what was really going on. So all of our decisions and discussions were from an uninformed place, really, um, not really knowing the brevity of what was at hand and the and how Michael was suffering, we did not know because he kept those things from us. I think that he was more concerned about everyone staying focused on the project and he will work his personal issues out. And that's what he was attempting to do. So in hindsight, I can say that we were never fearful that he wouldn't want to do the shows or be ready to do the shows at all because we still had rehearsal to do. We still had cleanup to do. He was going to have one or two shows, maybe three that first week, but then he was going to have a schedule and rehearsals in between. So he can really feel absolutely comfortable, you know, and who knows? I, I, I know that the concerns that I had came after Dr. Klein visits and I just chalked those up to needing to be sedated for whatever the procedure was he'd had at that visit, assuming it was something cosmetic because he'd done it before. So, Though it may have given me pause, it didn't rise to the level of alarm for me. And it was only after Michael passed that I realized what actually was going on. You know, we were startled and shocked just like everyone else. You know, and as things became more, you know, public, you know, it just painted this picture that I certainly wasn't you know, or had any reason to look for. And I remember that from your testimony from the trial about Michael coming back from Klein being groggy and a bit loopy. Even Alif Sankey, choreographer and dancer on the original Smooth Criminal video, who I think was also on This Is It, um, as an assistant producer, she talked about Michael 
rambling and saying God was speaking to him and not being coherent in his conversation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is that is that what you mean when you talk about being loopy and groggy? Well, I don't know. Well, in our conversations, he would make sense, and I understood what he was talking about. So it wasn't about rambling or anything like that. It was just you could tell, like, you know, when you come from the dentist or if you come from having a procedure like this, especially dermatological, or if it was having anything to do with the scalp, who knows? You know, you get painkillers or sedative, you know? And so I took what I was looking at as that because he had just come from Dr. Klein or if he was groggy in the morning and I asked him, Ooh, did you sleep? Well, no, I was up because we were working on the album. He was also working on his book. I don't know if it was a memoir, but I think it was what ultimately became Opus. Um, So in the midst of This Is It, he was a father to three kids and working on an album and working on a book and working on whatever other you know, special projects that he had, I think that were film related, you know, that were to roll out after this is it was up and running. So everything he said to me made sense. Yeah. And when Michael was looking concerning during the prep, did you, the close collaborators like you and Kenny and even Karen Fay and people like that, did you guys have meetings where you were discussing together concern? I don't think that there was ever any gigantic group meetings. People, you know, everybody would come talk to Kenny um, and we would sometimes have conversation among ourselves. But that was, you know, very much it. No one knew the extent. I was not privy to the extent of what was going on. Bush and Karen had a different relationship with Michael that preceded mine. You know, they probably would have more intimate conversations with him about certain topics that Michael and I wouldn't have. So their relationship with him was different. So I can't speak to what their experiences were, but mine never gave me the amount of alarm that I imagined that he would die. Yeah. Understood. And and once we spoke and I and I quoted some sections from Jermaine Jackson's book and I really want to quote these again because I I I think it's important that I get you on the record around this because it's a pretty full-on claim in this book. It's saying there were worrying signs stacking up for those who knew how on point and articulate he normally was. In the routine for Thriller, he turned left when he was meant to turn right. That was odd in itself, but when he did it a second time, he also started repeating himself a sentence or phrase like somebody with obsessive-compulsive disorder. He struggled to finish songs, and then there were occasions where he would be berated by the crew. He'd walk off stage and say things like, I just want somebody to be nice to me today. And a voice would yell back from the floor saying, if we could just have a coherent person here today. Uh, I don't know that to have happened. Everyone was always nice to Michael Jackson. Um, It was impossible not to be. And certainly no one would disrespect him that way out loud in public. Um, And I know that as a performer, as a dancer, especially one who had not been on stage in almost two decades, and at five decades old, um, yes, sometimes mistakes were made. Yes, sometimes we need to start the song over, but that's what rehearsal was for. Mm -hmm. So if not in our rehearsals, that certainly couldn't happen 
in a concert. So anything and anybody who goes through a creative process understands that it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to master anything, let alone at the level in which Michael Jackson had always created. And it was his process that he was in control of that we were there to support. So I can only say that that's why we were rehearsing. I've read an interview with you once. You gave it in 2009 to a fan site called The Final Curtain where you said in it, quote, Michael was definitely ready to do the concerts. In hindsight, with everything we know that was going on, do you personally wish, like Kenny and Karen, that you'd pushed harder and raised alarm bells louder? I don't know because... Understanding that Michael Jackson was the orchestrator, he was the architect, and he was the boss of this entire experience. We are there to support his vision, not to order him or demand of him or do anything but absolutely support his vision. And that was my lane and I was happy in it. So if I had the information that I have now, sure. But I I didn't even know what propofol was until 2009. So there is no way that anybody could have foreseen, you know, because we don't have the intimate sort of knowledge of his day-to-day life. That's not our job. And I think Michael appreciated our respecting his privacy. And all the times I went into Carrollwood or Neverland, I never went into his private space. I would go in the communal areas. I would go into the kitchen, of course, the rehearsal space, theaters, whatever. But his private space, off limits. Because he spent his life, you know, giving up his privacy and all of the, you know, because people always felt they expected so much of him and felt so entitled to him. Yeah. So I was never one who, I didn't even go into his dressing room unless he called me in, you know, so, or unless there was something very important that could not wait until he, you know, returned to the stage or came back out into the communal community areas, you know, because it, it's respectful. So, yes, of course, I wish I would have had more information. I would have been absolutely, you know, having different conversations, you know, but you got to understand if you're operating from a place that you don't have all the information, your, your decisions can't be as informed. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. As you continue to work with AEG after this is it, to bring the film to be a reality. Did you feel conflicted when testimony started coming out of the trial? For example, Randy Phillips' email where he was boasting that at the press conference he he slammed Michael into a shower and slapped him. Did you feel conflicted learning that, but then also wanting to bring the film out for its greater purpose? I'd never heard that until just now. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow, that was pretty widely reported. 
No, I didn't ever hear that he slapped him or no. Yeah. No, and at that time, you got to understand, I mean, I just lost my friend. We were focused on the property and figuring out this is it and trying to get it to the finish line in the best way we knew how and the only version that was possible. And that became my focus. And, you know, throughout all of that time, none of those people mattered to me. None of them. You know, naysayers or management, none of that. It was bigger than all of them at that point. It was about delivering our, our tribute, you know, to our colleague and our creative brother for all of these years. And, you know, the, the politics it, have always been one of my least favorite things in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, and I have nothing disparaging to say about any of them. That's not I worked with Michael Jackson. I worked with Michael Jackson before. And that's why I was there because of him, not because of anything else. And, you know, it always been my dream since a child. And, you know, I and, and fortunately, Michael and I found each other and he afforded me that dream for many years. And, you know, my interest had always been and will remain to him. So just to now wrap things up with the last few questions, what would be the best advice that Michael ever gave you as a collaborator? Kill them with kindness. What about your reflections on him as a artist and a dancer and a choreographer and his significance in the industry? I think that Michael Jackson's contributions you know, to the pop culture at large, not just to the dance or the music industries, um, is undeniable. You know, there'll never be another one. You know, I think that he 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 stood on the backs of greats and always acknowledged them. You know, like Sammy Davis Jr. and, and, and Jackie Wilson and James Brown, and you know, um, you know, just, hmm. he was just so amazing and so great. And I think that I. I'm just glad that people got to see the last glimpse of what he was planning in his creative process, because those were some of the most, the creative process with Michael was always some of the most amazing times that I've had in my creative life. And I always would say, I wish people could see this. I wish they could see how you really just rationalize that or what your psychology is about that choice or, or the why of some of the things that I as a fan too remain intrigued about. He was always super gracious, always nice, sometimes to a fault. And I would often ask him if he got bothered, you know, would people have misconceptions about him? And he would say, no, we just need to pray for them. He never held any ill will. He was just, I don't know, he was just, he was one of a kind. He really, really was. And I don't say that lightly. You know, I, you know, grew up uh, so influenced by what he and, and Michael Peters and, you know, and, and, and those choreographers and creative collaborators that came before Lavelle and I had done. That stuff molded us. I mean, the first concert I ever saw was the Victory Tour, mm. you know, and then subsequently seeing the Bad Tour and being very convinced in that moment, that is what I'm going to do. Seeing the Bad Tour in Atlanta with the Omni, you know, and seeing them up there like superheroes. I was like, that's what I'm doing. That exact thing. That is what I'm doing. And I knew that at an early age. So all the trials and tribulations that came along with that were just part of it. We were in unique positions that we were grateful to be in, experiences we remain grateful to have had. The media is terrible at portraying Michael in a certain light, as we've seen in the past couple of years. In your opinion, Travis Payne, how do you think Michael should be remembered? I think Michael should be remembered as... A father, 
an artist who cared about the planet, a humanitarian, and I think he was a prophet. He was often misunderstood. And I think that he just gave people the benefit of the doubt, always looked for and assumed the best in people. And that doesn't always match up with the world and its views. And for that, I wish that more people had had the opportunity to spend as much quality time with Michael as I did and others in the creative circle got a chance to, and then have an informed decision about who they feel he was and how he should be remembered. Because I'm certain that most of those people who have been driving the narrative out in the public never met him. For listeners who have really enjoyed this podcast, and I'm sure there's many, many of them out there that want to hear more from you, where can they connect with you online? I appreciate that. My website is travispain.com and on there is information to, you know, all my social media, uh, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. But yeah, I uh, do my best to keep it updated, but I, I do a lot on Instagram. It's travispain1 and my Twitter is it's travispain. And then I'm Travis Payne on Facebook, but I, I try to stay connected. I appreciate the love that comes from Michael's fans. It's still so very overwhelming. So many people are, you know, even even new fans who are just discovering Michael from from this is it. You know, there was there was a young group of um, dancers in Japan when we went over there, and they were young, young. This is it was their introduction to Michael. Wow! And in that short in that short time. You've got these kids who are just obsessed and the, the parents are making the costumes and, you know, so <laughs> I had tiny little gangster criminals running around like and it was just so amazing to see, you know, his generational appeal and and it goes beyond his artistry. I think that Michael Jackson was sent here for a purpose. And when people get it, it is some of the most amazing times I think they have in their lives and they're able to connect him to many of their best memories you know, receiving videos from people from around the world, like Bolivia or Brazil, just yesterday, you know, that are doing drill or are sending me their version of Thriller that they did when they were a little kid or, <laughs> you know, their entire, you know, troop that they have that did ghosts, you know. And so I do my best to post them, you know, just to let people continue to see how much those that are meant to get it and connect to Michael and his messages do. Thanks for sharing that information, Travis. And and listeners can also find the MJ Cast on social media. We are the MJ Cast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Listeners can find us at our website, themjcast.com, which is a repository for all of our episodes. We're on YouTube as the MJ Cast, and of course on podcast platforms. Lots of different platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're new over at Amazon, we're on Spotify. It's not hard to find us. Just download any of those apps and search the MJ Cast and subscribe. You really want to subscribe because what happens is episodes get delivered directly to your device. You get notified um, through a push notification when it's there ready for you to listen to. You can pause, come back to it later, listen to bits and pieces here and there as you go. And the brilliant thing about listening to us on a podcast app is that you've got show notes right in front of you that you can interact with as you're listening. So say we're talking about something, you can click the link, read what we're talking about as we're discussing it, all kinds of different things like that. Very interactive. So definitely head on over to a podcast app and subscribe.
I also want to give a very, very special shout out this Halloween episode to a couple of our listeners. We receive email all the time. Elise and I are just <laughs> constantly catching up on emails. So we thank everybody who emails in. We do read all of them. We may only reply to some, but thank you. There is one um, great email that we got recently, and I want to give a special shout out to Cheryl and June. Um, Cheryl is one of our, our longtime listeners, and uh, <laughs> her favorite episode recently is the History 25 Roundtable and a couple of others as well, like the Eddie Garcia one. But her daughter, June, said that Charlie Thompson is her favorite MJ cast guest, and I've made to pass that on to Charlie, that information. He was very, very happy. Um, but thank you so much, guys, for sending us an email. It was just brilliant. It, like, made Elise and I's entire week. And to see that photo of you, June, in, in your um, MJ cast shirt with the merch on the wall was just really, really special. And you, you must be probably... Probably one of our youngest listeners, I would say, but it means so much to Elise and I and Q and Charlie and Damien and the whole MJ cast family that we get to see young kids like you getting into Michael Jackson and loving his art just as much as we did when we were kids. Uh, so thank you so much for, for the love and uh, we love you guys too and keep Michaeling. And uh, <laughs> anyway, let's get back to it, Travis. What are you up to these days? Any exciting projects on the horizon we can look forward to? Many. In my Travis Payne Productions company, I've got TV and film properties in the works. Still working very diligently on my Travis Payne shoe line and um, apparel. Um, I manage an artist out of Japan named Sho. Uh, he's a world champion, um, Japanese champion beatboxer. We're working on his album, directing uh, several films coming up, two in the dance genre. One is a uh, documentary. And I'd like to uh, work more in my hometown of Atlanta, you know, because the opportunities there have increased exponentially recently and really be able to be bi-coastal in this coming year. You know, maybe not 2020, but certainly by 2021, having productions going on on both coasts and then hopefully whenever it's safe to travel again, returning to Asia and continuing work that we started in China for new projects um, as well as Japan and South Korea. I, like everyone else, is just really trying to get a sense of, you know, and, and, and regain footing during this pandemic. And my thoughts and prayers go out to everyone and their families. I mean, I know it's a tough time. I hope that we will be able to look back at this interview and see that we're much better off than we were at this time. And I am just thankful to you, um, Jaman. I appreciate you. Uh, staying in touch and, and sorting this out and your team and MJCast. And I hope that, you know, I've been able to give you some insight into our great Michael Jackson. And, you know, it's always my pleasure and honor to celebrate him and his legacy. Absolutely. And, and listeners probably don't actually know that this is our third session of recording this interview. The, we've probably spent a total time of about five hours together um, six. record six hours and <laughs> boy, have I got some editing ahead of me from the bottom That's of fine. my heart, from the bottom of our listeners hearts, Travis Payne. Thank you so much for joining us on the MJ cast for your honesty, for your candor and for your beautiful recollections of working with your friend, Michael. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Remember everybody heal the world. We are one. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. <laughs>